We sang one of the most um, common hymns or one of the most popular hymns of all times, Amazing Grace. And we sang these words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, oh, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And that is just such a loved hymn. It was written by John Newton, a man who had a very sordid background and a, a man who was definitely a sinner, you know, unlike any of us. But it's, 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 it's helpful to know that this man has sometimes been called um, a debauchee, which means he was just into debauchery and all kinds of different things. He was a slave trader. Newton lost his first job because of unsettled behavior and impatience, impatience of restraint. A pat, that's a nice way of saying he was a jerk. Um, a pattern that would persist for years. He remained arrogant and subordinate. He lived with moral abandon. He said, I sinned with a high hand. Interesting phrase. I sinned with a high hand. He later wrote, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. But that wasn't John Newton's story. John Newton's story was when Christ met him on a ship in a storm. And he began to realize that life was temporary and life could end at any time. And he gave his life to Christ that night and turned things around, eventually leaving the slave trade and fighting against the slave trade, leading Bible studies and writing hymns, one of which was Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Near his death, he wrote these words. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Amen? And we can look at a story like that, and we can think, wow, God really saves people who are deep in sin. And He does, that's true. But, but if you catch my tone there, we can look at it as completely other than ourselves. As, look at how bad He was, look at that, and, and, and we begin to think of ourselves as something different, something other. Well, that's not me. Good thing I never was a sinner quite like that. I grew up in a church. And that's sort of one of the the curses of being a church kid. Now, I'm not opposed to that. My kids are all church kids. I was a church kid. But it is so easy to fall into the trap of thinking, I haven't done the really bad things in life. And that is a sinful attitude and a wrong attitude. An attitude that will keep us from the cross and keep us from experiencing the mercy and grace of our Savior. This morning, as we come to the text, we want to deal with that a little bit. Deal with, are we all the foremost of sinners, as Paul said? Are we all great sinners? Or are some of us just a little better than others? Or as Animal Farm and George Orwell would say, a little more equal than others? Or do we all need a Savior? Do we all realize the depth of our sin and the depth of His grace? We often have a lightweight love of God because we have a lightweight view of our sin that leads to a lightweight view of His grace and His mercy. Today I hope we change that a little bit as we dive into Luke chapter 7. And we're going to jump into a, a sinful woman coming to anoint Jesus at the most inopportune of times. And, and we're going to watch the, the response of the religious leaders, the response of Jesus. And today I hope that that challenges us to see the weight of our sin, to see the depth of His forgiveness, 
and to confront self-righteousness in our own lives that I would argue every one of us has to fight against sitting in this room. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 36 through the the first few verses of chapter 8 today. And you might say, oh yeah, the story of of Jesus being anointed by a woman. I've heard that before in the other Gospels. Just something to consider. This version is probably, or this story is probably a different occasion than the story that happened in Matthew and John that happened during Passion Week. That happened right before Christ was crucified. Different characters, different settings. This is early in ministry. We're still up in northern Israel. We're in the, around the Galilee. And his ministry is just getting started. And so this is something, this is a different time that that happened. So that's helpful to understand as we approach God's word. We want to remind ourselves where we've been. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Luke. So when we were last in Luke, as we're studying through, we've been watching Jesus's ministry throughout the Galilean region and really answering the question. And Luke is helping us be certain of who is Jesus? Who is he? Was he just a great teacher? Was he a good hiker that had 12 guys following him around? Was he a great man? Was he a prophet? Or as we're going to see, Jesus continually unwraps and, and the, the layers of the onion, so to speak, and, and reveals that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the, uh, the anointed one. And that's the bigger picture that this story falls within. And, and we get lessons out of these stories, but the bigger picture is Jesus is saying, I am the Christ. And we've seen him heal the centurion's servant. We see, we've seen him raise a widow's son during a funeral procession. We've seen him respond to John the Baptist with caring love, even with the doubts, showing that he is the Messiah, the coming one promised in Scripture. And so now we continue to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So we come to the text, verse 36, and, and we'll, we'll break it down into a couple of chunks. 36 through 40 really introduces the story. And, and, and the idea that, that I want to have us think about is we need to beware of self-righteous attitudes. Beware of self-righteous attitudes. They can keep us from seeing the ministry God can do. Beware. Look into our own hearts for self-righteous attitudes. They can keep us from seeing the ministry God can do. And so Luke here in verse 36 sets the stage of a righteous Pharisee named Simon, appalled that a sinner would put on an embarrassing show and even touch Jesus. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And right from the start, from verse 36, we see something interesting. We've already heard the story of Jesus going in with tax collectors, sinners, publicans, and the Pharisees were upset about it. But he'll even eat with Pharisees. He'll eat with anyone who's responding and and is interested in, in finding out who he is. He will reach out. Interesting that Jesus was able to be at home in both social groups. But we go on. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And, and some of us think that that's an odd phrase. You know, we, we're trying to get our kids to not do this. Um, as they, yeah, I know one of them's in here. But, um, reclining at a table was something that was just a common practice in meals at the time. And, and what they would do, and I have a picture of this, um, if we go to that picture. It might have looked something like this. Sometimes it was a U, U shape of tables where servants could get in and serve the food. But the, the men and women would lay down 
and their face would be toward the table. They'd lay on their left hand, and then with their right hand, they can grab the fruit or meat or whatever they needed to. And their feet are stretched out to the back. And that's important to understanding the story. It was a picture of something like this. Now, in this case, it was probably either a formal dinner or a formal banquet or a Sabbath banquet. Because they didn't always do this, but they, they did this at formal banquets. But also, as we'll see, this woman was able to come in and view what was going on. And it's interesting because they were a much more social culture when it came to meals. If I'm eating a meal with my family and you come in and stand back and watch what I'm doing, I call that stalking. This is not good. But for them, at those kind of meals, they could be in this, this circle and they'd be laying down reclining and eating and then other people from town were allowed to come in. And they were allowed to come in and listen to the conversation because this is where teaching might occur. This is where instruction might occur. And so that's the setting here. They're around this table. People could come in, and a meal was an event. It wasn't just a five-minute thing. It was an event where they would spend a long time talking. And then we get to the next verse, verse 36, 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at, reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And again, there's so many details in our, in our Western mindset we miss here that, that Luke is setting up of what happens. A woman of the city who is a sinner. And we're going to find out later how appalled the Pharisee is. Most, most commentaries think that she was probably a, the town prostitute. That she was known for her sin. It was a disgusting sin to them. But probably the town prostitute... She comes in and she's observing. And just picture Simon the Pharisee with, with how righteous he felt he was, how, how clean um, ceremonially he felt he was. Picture him sitting there with his guest Jesus that perhaps he was trying to get to know. We don't quite know his intentions. But I, I think there's probably some sense of he's, he's trying to get to know her a little bit. And the prostitute comes in or the sinner comes in and just stands behind him. And he's probably thinking, oh no. Oh no. Yeah, what does this say about me and my house? And then it goes on to, she, she, she has this alabaster flask of ointment. And I actually have a picture of that too. Um, not the exact one, but something like that. They'd make these, these um, ointment flasks and they'd break the top of that and they'd use them for anointing. Most likely very expensive. Um, if, if it's nard and that type of ointment, that type of perfumed ointment, it was probably worth about a year's wages. So think of taking your wages for the last year and you're going to put it all into one flask of ointment and you're about to, to spread it all over some stranger's feet. That's the setting of what's going on here. And this was troubling for Simon. As it was... She's not only the center of town, but this is a woman coming to Jesus. And this is a woman touching Jesus. And women were treated as second-class citizens. And Jesus here is showing that in the kingdom of God, no one is a second-class citizen, women or anyone else. And so she comes, and it's setting up this comparison between Simon the Pharisee and how he treated Jesus and how the woman treated Jesus. A woman that was willing to be ridiculed to come into the house of a Pharisee so she could adore and worship Jesus. And then we see her act in verse 38. 
and standing behind him at his feet, and you can get that picture with them reclining, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the, the ointment. And we see what, what is a precious scene, and we think of as a precious scene of this woman coming to anoint. And I can just picture it. She's standing behind him and she knows who he is. More than likely, she's already heard his teaching and she's already been touched by his teaching and repentant already coming into this. And she's responding to that just with the joy and the wonder that God would save a sinner like me. And she comes behind him. And as she's coming closer to to anoint his feet with the oil, She's overwhelmed by the emotion of it all. She just starts to cry. And those tears start to to land on Jesus' feet, his feet that had not been washed yet at this point. And they wore sandals and had been walking around. And and so these dirty feet, and you can just picture a little bit of tears on this dirty foot, and it just starts to make a mess. And I I could picture she's a little horrified at what's happening because this wasn't her goal. It was about the ointment and, and worship. And so she gets down on her knees and it says that, that she, she wiped his feet with her hair. Now what we think of as a sweet gesture and a wonderful gesture of worship, Simon the Pharisee is off on the other side horrified. How could she do this? This, this woman who is a disgusting sinner comes into my home, my guest of honor, she, she starts to touch his feet. And, and then she starts to wipe them with her hair. Now, ladies, we don't, you don't get this much because this isn't our culture. But for them, if you were a, a moral woman, you had your hair up. To have your hair down meant that you were basically looking for a man, that you were a little bit loose in that area. And so this was evidence of, man, she's just more of a sinner, Jesus. And he's horrified. But she's attending to his feet, a menial task not even a servant or not even a disciple would do, only servants would do. She's kissing his feet, a a practice that was customary of affection, of respect, of reverence. And again, we have this this comparison of the Pharisee and what he didn't do. And we're going to see that coming up in the woman and what she did. She went out of her way to find Jesus. She heard he was reclining at Simon's house. She was willing to come and brave being in a a Pharisee's house and the judgment of that to come and worship and anoint Jesus. Very different from the passivity of the Pharisee, except for his quickness to judge. Except for his quickness to judge. And we see that coming up in the next verse in 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, and so he's in his own mind, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. If he knew, if he really was a prophet, and and it's interesting, in the Greek language, we have different kinds of if statements, and we have an if that's a genuine question. This may or may not be true, but we have ifs that we are saying are true, and that's this one he's already come to the conclusion that Jesus is not a prophet. And so he's saying it's more like since he's not really a prophet because he didn't know, he's letting her her touch him. It proves it. Proves the point. And what we see is this righteous indignation coming out. How could you do this? 
And he's directing that righteous indignation, maybe a little bit at the woman, calling her a sinner, but now he's directing it at Jesus. And how could Jesus even minister to her? And that's so often the way it is with self, self-righteousness and righteous indignation. It just spills over onto everyone around us because we can't hold it back. We just can't, can't hold it back. And so, hey, it's at the woman first and now it's at Jesus. How could he do this? How could he do this? And the spirit, this critical judgmental spirit just takes over. It's like a festering open sore that is contagious. If you were a prophet, and you obviously aren't, you wouldn't associate with her. And so Jesus doesn't let this go in verse 40. I love it. Now remember, this was in his head, right? This was not spoken. And so Jesus sort of proves he's a prophet by addressing what's in his mind and what's his thinking in verse 40. And Jesus answered to him, answered, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And you, you can almost picture a little bit of contempt in that phrase and, and how that's worded and the curtness of that. And so Jesus is going to answer his thoughts. He's going to prove that he's, he's a prophet. Now, now, I've got to tell you, if Jesus came alongside me and said, walk with me, I, need, I have something I need to talk to you about. That would be a fear and trembling moment. That, that is not something I want to hear from Messiah, the Lord of the universe. I mean, some, some of you youth that were with me back in, in the olden days when I was a youth pastor, um, some of you have said that if I came to you and said, walk with me, you were shaking in your boots. And, and I didn't realize I said that. I said, walk with me. And we'd have an um, instructive talk about some things that needed to change or some things that, that had happened. That, that's sort of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, Simon, I have something to say. I have something to say. And he's going to address this self-righteous, righteous indignation attitude that we're seeing because Simon can't handle this woman coming in and worshiping Jesus. Now, now before we put ourselves in the woman's shoes and say, I would never be like Simon. What if someone today walked in? And I don't know, I'm, I'm not real up on, on culture, but one of the Kardashians, okay? One of them comes in. Some of you know who they are. <laughs> not wearing much, not wearing appropriate clothing. And they come in and they sit in the front, okay? What are you thinking at that point in time? Oh, starting to hit a little more close to home, isn't it? And then we're taking communion that day and they come up during communion and they take the elements and they're just weeping and they're, they're still dressed inappropriately. They're still a sinner. They don't have a place here. Do you see how quickly we can go to those attitudes? And that's wrong. That's sin. Because Jesus can cleanse anyone. Anyone. This woman, this Pharisee, even you and I with the stains in our hearts. Throughout the morning, I want to talk a little bit about self-righteous attitudes and how easily we can fall into them. And I want to challenge us with some things of, of how we can tell if we've fallen into a self-righteous attitude. Now, before you begin nudging the person sitting next to you, remember the log and the spec thing that we talked about in chapter 6. But also, thinking you need to nudge your neighbor is one of the marks of a self-righteous attitude. 
right? (laughs) Oh, they need this. No, no, no. I I want us to come back to, I need this. I need this. One of the quotes that I read about self-righteousness this week, I love this one. A bore is a man who spends so much time talking about himself that you can't talk about yourself. And so we're quick to judge this in others, but really this is something we all struggle with. It is so easy to become self-righteous. So there's a couple questions we need to answer. What is a self-righteous attitude? And I put four points that maybe help us round out what we're talking about with a self-righteous attitude. The first one is overestimating your own righteousness or thinking you've earned your own righteousness. Overestimating your own righteousness, thinking that we're good, thinking that, yeah, we, we, we're pretty much living life like we should. Yeah, I sin every now and then. Maybe it's sin of pride. That's always an easy one to confess. No one really thinks worse of that. But hey, you know, overall, I'm pretty good. That's, that's, that's part of a self-righteous attitude because now I'm thinking I'm righteous and I've earned my righteousness. You know, one of the things, some of my, one of my kids in particular often says, oh my goodness. And this is just one of the curses of being in a pastor's home. I'll often look at him and say, well, actually, that's not true. <laughs> He's like, what? What? I, you are not good. <laughs> in fact, you're pretty bad. And, pretty, and, and then I explain, now before you think I'm a horrible dad, I explain to him, well, none of us are good. And, and we joke about it. We laugh about it. But none of us are good. None of us have any goodness. Our, our best efforts at righteousness are filthy rags. And so how dare we become a little self-righteous? Second item of trying to understand what this is is when I think of myself as arrived or at least better than some of the other sinners. If we're honest with ourselves, we all do that sometimes. We all do that with each other in this room. And it's self-righteousness. It is a stain on what Jesus wants us to be. Third one, when I think I deserve God's blessing. When I think I deserve God's blessing, I have no clue at that point of my sin. And that's a self-righteous attitude. Similar to number two, the fourth one, when I look down on others for their sin. That righteous indignation. That, again, is the whole log and speck. I'm not, I'm not ready to get a speck out of my brother's eye until I've realized the log that's in my own eye. Because that then means I'm coming with the right attitude and the right heart to help them rather than righteous indignation. Now it's, let's work on sin together instead of, I'm going to help you overcome sin. Two completely different attitudes there. Just, I put a quick list in your notes It's adapted from Paul Tripp's book, Dangerous Calling. He lists some characteristics of the self-righteous, and these stepped on my toes, so I thought I'd share them. (laughs) Number one, they do not see their walk with God as a community project. They do not see their walk with God as a community project. It's it's just me. I don't need to share with anyone else. I don't need anyone else coming alongside. Two, they, they tend to not work well with others. Three, when we're self-righteous, we consistently believe we're right and we know what's best and we always have an excuse if we're wrong or lose. Oh, I was sick that day. Oh, they probably cheated. It wasn't fair. It was the refs. Yeah, that stepped on my toes. Number four, 
they're resistant to change. They're resistant to change because my way is obviously the best. Five, they do not respond well when reminded they need to change. Six, they do not desire exhortation or admonition from others, even getting angry at times. They are not patient, number seven, with those who mess up, struggle with sin, or have lost their way. Any of these hitting home a little bit? As God starts to reveal some areas of our life? Eight, they do not deal well with opposition or accusations. Nine, they will consistently wonder why God has singled them out for difficulty. That goes back to part of the definition of I think I deserve God's blessing. Ten, they do not see a need to admit or confess their sin. And eleven, they consistently point out the sin of others with an air of superiority. It's not an exhaustive list, but it sure gets us started. Of saying, am I like Simon the Pharisee? Am I dealing with self-righteousness where I'm even calling out Jesus and saying he can't even be a prophet because he's talking to that disgusting sinner? He's letting her worship him. How dare he? The next half of the story, we get to the antidote for self-righteousness, the solution. And it's awareness of the weight of our own sin that leads to joy at the depth of God's forgiveness and grace. The solution is an awareness of the weight of our own sin that leads to joy at the depth of God's forgiveness and grace. Let's continue on with the story, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. And he's going to tell a parable here and tell a story. Jesus was marvelous as using illustrations to get points across. A certain moneylender had two debtors. who One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I think a little bit grudgingly. The the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now now let's understand this. We we come and Jesus paints this picture of two debtors. And a denarii, you know, most of you didn't go to Ralph's this week and pay with denarii. But a single denarii was worth about a day's wages. And so 50 denarii would be close to two months of wages. 500 denarii would be just over a year and a half's worth of wages. Okay, so we're getting the picture here of a lot of money. Even the 50 denarii, I think, is a lot of money. Two months of wages. But the comparison between the two is is very different. And and so it it would be like if if I came to your house this next week and said, you know, I'd like to help you out. And to one person I said, you know, I'd like to pay off your house. Let me just pay off your house for you. Let's assume that it's not paid off. I guess I could choose someone who's, no. You owe, you know, 300000 on your house. Let me pay that off for you. And to the next person, I say, you know what? Let me, let me cover the Christmas gifts that you spent this year. Now, hopefully that's not equal. Um, <laughs> you never know. Who's going to appreciate that more? That's the scenario Jesus is setting up. The greater debt. Now, in that case, yeah, yeah, it's a debt, but these are, these are serious times where debt was hard to get rid of. And so Jesus is saying, what if I wipe out $80,000 versus $8,000 or something like that? 
And Jesus is using words here that also remind us that he's talking about sin and the penalty for sin. He uses words like debt, like in the, in the story that they could not pay. They had no way to pay for this, which is where we're at with our sin. And when Simon grudgingly answers, I suppose, I suppose the one whom he canceled the larger debt, and Jesus said, you're right, the hook was set. The hook was, Jesus had him at that point. He's now already admitted the point that Jesus is trying to make. Oh, that's brilliant. And, and we see here that Jesus is helping him understand the larger debtor appreciates the forgiveness and responds to Jesus out of love even more. The issue isn't the amount of sin. Okay? It, for us and what, what Jesus is going to get to, the issue isn't the amount of sin. He's not saying that Simon didn't have the same level of sin as this woman. The issue is our awareness or consciousness of that sin. Does that make a difference? It's, it would be as if you all had the same debt and one of you said, I need $20 to cover my debt and another one of you said, I need $2 million to cover my debts. If you all have $2 million debts, that, that, that doesn't speak well for the person that said $20 would cover it. And Jesus is coming back to, do we realize, are we conscious of our debt? Because that is directly related to our response to God. The Pharisee was a great sinner too. He didn't realize it. You know, we, we use John Newton's quote at the beginning, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner is something every one of us should be able to say. If we're honest, if we truly look at our lives, we are all great sinners with a debt we cannot pay. But that's not the end of the story. Because Christ made a way and Christ paid. We're going to go on, verse 44. Then turning to the woman, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, I'd actually underline that phrase because Jesus is pointing out you haven't seen her. Do you understand what's going on? Do you see the situation? You haven't. There is spiritual blindness here going on. Do you see her repentant heart? Do you see that, or do you see just the sin and stay away? Do you see people that need Christ or do you see dirty sinners? Do we believe Christ can cover that sin? And he goes on now with the comparison and we find out some things that Simon didn't do for Jesus that are just normal, hospitable things. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And that had to sting. Because those are are three things that were just common courtesies. Not law that they had to do, but common courtesies of hospitality of the time. When, When guests came in, because of the dirt and the filth of walking through dirt and sandals, a servant would typically wash their feet. No one did that for Jesus. There would be often a welcome kiss. Now, now, don't get scared off by that. It's not like 
anything weird. They would just kiss cheek to cheek and, and there would be this welcome kiss. No one did that for Jesus. There was, there was nothing that would welcome. They'd often give a little olive oil for the head, a little ointment. But instead, she's pouring perfume on his feet because Simon didn't do any of these things. And he's calling her a sinner? And he's indignant at her? One author wrote, Simon treated Jesus with callous, calculated contempt. He carefully avoided every custom that would make the Lord feel at home. And all the guests and onlookers knew it as they took their places around the table. See the picture here? See what his self-righteousness has done? Now he's, he's equal or better than Jesus and not even willing to give common courtesies. And this was an insult. Everyone would have been able to see the dirty feet. Everyone would know what was happening. You know what's amazing? Jesus still came. He still came and engaged And he used that as a teachable moment. But she made up for it because she truly valued Jesus where Simon didn't. She extended those courtesies. And we go on to see why. In 47, 48, key verses. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven love little loves little and 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 again this is jesus coming together with the teaching of the whole story and he says her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much and this isn't saying that because she loved her sins were forgiven the idea of the for there is that's a result of that that's how you know that she's been forgiven much because she loves much that's how you know the forgiveness has happened This isn't the cause of the forgiveness. It's the result of the forgiveness. And Jesus acknowledges she has many sins. But Jesus forgives many sins. In fact, there's no amount of sin that can take us out of the reach of Jesus. None. None. It's a lack of awareness of our sins that can hold Jesus at bay. Because in the comparison... Jesus is using the woman as the one that's been forgiven much, and Simon the Pharisee is the one who's been forgiven little. Not because he doesn't have sin, but because he doesn't realize his sin. Like I said, our love for God and appreciation for what he has done is related to our awareness of our sin. Tim Keller words it this way. I love this quote. As long as we think we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. Catch that? As long as we think that we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. St. Francis said, There is nowhere a more wretched and miserable sinner than I. Paul the Apostle, in the verses we read this morning, said the same thing. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who, are, who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he bursts out in an expression of praise. What was the key to her love for Christ? What was the key 
to, to getting past self-righteousness and the difference between her and Simon, the key is understanding her need for Christ. That she is a great sinner. In the title of, of the message today, I said we need to see ourselves as 500 forgiven sinners. I didn't want to give it away by putting the word denarii in there yet. But do you see yourselves with a debt of 500 denarii or 50 denarii? And that will affect your relationship with God. That will affect how appreciative you are of Him, how in awe of Him. That will affect your worship. And then He reaffirms to her in verse 48. As He's, I think, gently caring for her and nurturing her through this. And He said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And He reassures her that He's taking care of it. That repentance leads to forgiveness. And that is a real thing. In verse 49, Then those who were at the table with Him begin saying to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we see people amazed because to forgive sins was a clear indication that He is claiming to be God. I I, I chuckle whenever anyone tells me, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you read the Gospels? Right here's another time. When he says, I forgive sins, your sins are forgiven, he is claiming to be the divine. And so at that point, they're faced with a decision, the same decision as we are. Either he's lying and blaspheming, or he's the Messiah, and we need to turn to him and follow him. One of the two has to be true. And, he confront, and the, the people there are confronted with that. Who is this? And some of them probably start to realize he's the Messiah and follow him. And some probably don't. We don't know the result of Simon. But then he turns and, and says to the woman again, your faith has saved you. That's how we know it wasn't her love that saved. It was her faith that saved her. Go in peace. So we see faith that leads to forgiveness And forgiveness that leads to peace with God. And this incredible outpouring of worship. What a great response of gratitude by this woman to Jesus. What a great result. Because she was aware of her sin. Village, if we're going to stay away from self-righteousness, if we're going to fight this, we need to see the depth of our sin. And then we can see the depth of God's grace. What are some of the results of being self-righteous? And maybe to to help us see how serious this is, we need to look at some of the results from this story. The first is a critical spirit. The self-righteousness in Simon, it made him critical of both the woman and Jesus. We can turn up our noses so easily at those that are struggling. Instead of coming alongside and saying, "Let's, let's do this together. And that makes it hard to be transparent with each other in the family of God, right? If I know you're going to come at me, if I admit that I have any iota of sin, I'm not going to tell you. But if I know you're going to say, Jesus can handle that and point me to the cross and point me to His grace and walk with me, oh, let's do that. One of the other results we see in this story of self-righteousness is a spiritual blindness. Simon couldn't see that Jesus could help her. He couldn't even see her what her heart was. And then spiritual paralysis. 
self-righteousness kept Simon from helping this woman. He was disgusted by her instead of seeing her as a woman made in the image of God that needed Jesus. It also kept him from acknowledging her repentance. Self-righteousness stops ministry. It, it, it halts ministry. You cannot be effective with that kind of spirit. Think about this. What would happen if we only ministered to people that look like us, think like us, are in our own social circles and our own social statuses? If we only ministered to people that we thought were safe? We'd have a great social club and no ministry. Because God wants every immortal soul to know Him. And I don't care skin color. I don't care what their past is. Every person to know Him. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I have a past. I shouldn't even be in a church. You should be. This is where you should be because God has grace and He has died for your sins in Jesus Christ, His Son. This is exactly where you should be. And that's, we're, we're glad you're here. And if you've been a Christian a long time and you're here, we're glad you're here even though you're a disgusting sinner. Because you're forgiven. Because of the grace that God gives. Fourth result there I have is spiritual damage. It deeply damages our own spiritual lives. It shuts down our spiritual heart. It leads to staleness spiritually because everything's performance-based. Everything is, well, okay, she has that background. He has that background. He does this. He does this. It keeps us from being amazed at God's grace and mercy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's a key to that, that hymn. Those are some of the results of self-righteousness. And so we want to we solve that. The solution to self-righteousness is an awareness of the weight of our own sin that leads to joy at the depth of God's forgiveness and grace. We need to pursue that. Go to the next chapter, chapter 8. And and I think these three verses go with this story because I think it's an example now of Jesus reaching beyond social barriers, reaching beyond places where normal people would, as He did with the woman. He now will talk about ministry. And in point number three, Jesus' humble example was to cross boundaries and include everyone that followed Him as disciples. Now again, this is a section we may not get in our Western mindset because it's different now. But, but listen to this. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, or Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And we see the gospel spreading. Because people are figuring out who He is and, and we see that the, the whole area is being taught the good news and this is an itinerant ministry. But did you catch who was with Him? You had the twelve with Him, which we know the twelve apostles, but then Luke intentionally starts to list women that were with Him. And again, we don't think anything of it. But for them at the time, this was scandalous. Because women were treated as second-class citizens, but not to Christ. 
And he brings up Mary Magdalene, who was, who was healed of seven demons. Not the greatest background. And she's, she's, she's healed and she's following Christ. He brings up Joanna, wife of Herod's household manager. So someone of means. And you have different people. And, and she's there helping. Susanna, who's not mentioned again, but she's mentioned here. And many others who provided for ministry out of their means. These women weren't just tagalongs. They were integral to the ministry that Jesus was doing. In many cases, supporting it, providing it. And Jesus is showing an example, I think, of what he just talked about with the woman and, and getting past self-righteousness is realizing there are no boundaries here that, that come from gender or race. If someone is following Christ, they are a disciple of his. Men, if I can speak to you for a moment, learn from how important women were to Jesus. That he was changing the norm, changing the social norm, and bringing them into inclusion into the kingdom. He was protecting this woman. He was caring to this woman. He brought her in. He he mentions the others. Men, we are to protect the women in our lives. We are to follow this example. I could go off on this for a while, especially in this day and age. But we're to protect and value women as they are made in the image of God and they are co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. And that means our wives, that means our daughters, that means every woman that's in this sanctuary. Protect the women around us. Value them. Be careful how we speak to them. Protect them when others do not speak well to them. That would be following Jesus' example. See, he was concerned with those outside of the privileged group. He was concerned with those that were left to the side of the road, that were thought less of. What a great example. Just want to end by coming back to some lessons from this whole passage. Just summarizing. And if we're to apply this, if we're to get get past self-righteousness, the first step is we've got to look at ourselves for self-righteousness. We've got to start by looking at the log in our own eyes before we criticize anyone else or how things should have done. Am I self-righteous? Or maybe a better better question would be, how am I self-righteous? Because we all struggle with it. How am I self-righteous? You look back over the definition. Look back over some of those 11 questions or statements. Second thing to, to lesson from this, and these are things we've talked about. Our love for God and our spiritual passion are directly related to an awareness of our sin and its forgiveness. And there has to be both. And if, if we are struggling with a dry spell, if we're struggling with okay, I don't know where, where God's at and, and I haven't seen Him really active in my life, this is the starting point. Are we aware of our sin, the depth of it, but are we aware of His forgiveness? And I, I'm not saying we need to wallow and say, oh, I'm such a sinner. But we need to acknowledge that we're a sinner. Acknowledge the depth and breadth of our sin and self-centeredness. And then acknowledge our our complete inadequacy to deal with it 
but then realize that God's mercy and grace has forgiven it. It is done on the cross. It is taken care of. It has been defeated. It has been paid for. So many times, one of the things that keeps us wallowing in our sins is we refuse to accept God's forgiveness. And we won't forgive ourselves. Oh, men and women of village, if Jesus has forgiven you, don't take that on yourself then. Don't think you're greater than Jesus and you still have to punish yourself. If Jesus has forgiven you, experience that grace and that freedom and enjoy it. The third lesson there is we need to remember what we don't deserve. Remember what we don't deserve. I don't deserve approval by God. I don't deserve acceptance into His family. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve His daily provision. I don't deserve the ability to live the Christian life. But by His grace and mercy, He has given those things to those who believe. As we work through self-righteousness, the next thing is we need to, to learn from the woman and be bold and courageous with our appreciation and gratefulness for what God has done. Oh, we need to step out and say, man, I praise God for His forgiveness. She was willing to go into Simon's house, not her favorite place. And then finally, be willing to cross boundaries to disciple people for Christ. That's taking steps that overcome our self-righteousness, our righteous indignation. I am with you on this. We are great sinners. But we have a great Savior. And so we worship Him. This morning as we leave the story, let's not identify with Simon, not identify with Jesus necessarily. We'll follow His example. But let's identify with the woman and say our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Let's pray. Lord God, our sins are many. My sins are many. If I'm really honest about it, my heart is black and deceitful above all else. But Lord, we praise You for Your mercy. We praise You for Your righteousness You have given to us that we didn't deserve. Lord, we praise You for the greatest Christmas gift that we could ever receive. And so we worship You and we praise You and we would wipe Your feet with our tears if we could because our sins, even though they're many, they're paid for, they're done. They're forgiven. Thank You, God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Revelation 1, 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go with God this week. Happy New Year's.